have a matchmaker. where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer placements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles, which we think deserve more acclaim, and to which attention must be paid. I'm Matt, and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. Here's how this works. Two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry, sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, and sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, I have two new albums to talk through, and Tim will make the choice for the subtitles albums list. Then in part two, Tim will have two new movies to discuss, and I will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movies list. Sometimes I will have seen the movies, and sometimes Tim will have listened to the albums, but at the end of the day what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we finish this off, we'll do some fun activities with the new lists we've collaborated on, but before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is In the Aeroplane Over the Sea, Neutral Milk Hotel's 1998 album, coming in at number 43 on the spin list. If you are familiar with me and familiar with this album, you may well be assuming that I have thoughts on this album, and you would be correct if you are not familiar with me and or this album. I have thoughts on this album, and we'll get into those, but uh, I want to kick it over to Tim first, who I vaguely warned about this. Um, it just, What's your impression? I, I know you got to listen to this one. What's your impression? Uh, what is the role of In the Aeroplane Over the Sea and like your general music knowledge like how has it come up and then just you know what did you think after listening I'm, I'm curious about all manner of relationship to this album well i um i want to start by asking a question that um kind of has been in my mind since since i knew that i was have to going to have to like actually listen to this thing uh and that is who lives in the airplane over the sea it's jeff mangum and now that i've gotten that out of the way um it's it's interesting that I didn't come to this album the same time that I came to the Decemberists because there's a lot of the same like vibe to to this. Not that they sound the same. Um, I think that just in terms of how many instruments and how much more produced the Decemberists sound than this, but like you can sort of you can sort of like hear the template for it um, for what the Decemberists do, and of course as as teenage me loved that band and like adult me still very much likes that band um but this is like the version of the decemberists that i think they wanted to be on that album that i hate and that i don't acknowledge the existence of um except i really liked in the airplane over the sea i thought that it was 
it was really melodic in, in the right places, except when it decided to be sort of discordant, but I was on board with a sort of like discordant louder aspects as well. Um, I will say that it's like, uh, as someone who's not a, a like well-versed in what people listen to and, you know, that just like the music scene generally, it like Neutral Milk Hotel and In the Aeroplane Over the Sea have... For an outsider like myself, like, it's not a punchline, exactly. Um, I don't think people disrespect it, but there's something about about the vibe that you get from the album art, <laughs> or just from the fact that it's Aeroplane spelled like that, or the, the name of the band. Like, a lot of things just sort of play into, like, gosh, aren't these indie folks a little bit precious? Like, that's kind of the, the joke that you you feel so as someone who's outside of it often um i know that i've gotten that impression of them more than i alongside i should say alongside people who are like this is a tremendous album it's it's a it's a major one for me personally like that kind of thing so it all sort of it all sort of ties together so i guess that's the outsider perspective mixed with a little bit of spongebob so this is a tremendous album that means a lot to me personally, and that was as good a segue as anyone as anything. Um, a couple points off of that. One, I think, yeah, I think to some degree there is that like, oh, isn't this precious reaction to it? But I, I think maybe more so, but definitely in conjunction with there's just like this isn't this is not a cool band. And, and for something coming out of the late 90s um, to be this important to like where indie music is going to go, uh, to be just patently uncool is, uh, it's something in 1998. Like, I think we're more accepting and used to that now, but like, that re- that sticks out like a sore thumb, I think. Um, they're the anti-pavement in a way. Like, I think there are some similarities in sound to be drawn between those bands, but... Um, Mangum is not trying to be cool, does not care. This is deeply earnest music. There's not a hint of frickin' irony anywhere, uh, even in its more absurdist flourishes. And, like, that's why I love it so much. Um, We'll get into more about that, but there's just a, a, a genuine earnestness and, like, actual aloofness in a way not in the sense of non-emotional but like it's not a put upon ironic detachment it's these are my emotions and like i'm going to share these and if you connect you connect if you don't you don't and um i don't there's just something about that like honesty that really speaks to me i'll get more into the music but tim you had your hand up i will say that like listening to it the the preciousness like joke that kind of goes about it like that dissipates within 15 seconds of the album starting like i don't i don't mean to make it sound like i i found the whole album sort of pretentious and like indie whatever you know as i was listening um but like i think i it really doesn't take long to like get into that state of mind that i think like you were saying like this is this is very raw and the feelings are very strong and like you can take it or or you don't take it but like it didn't, it really didn't take me more than 15, 20 seconds to be like, okay, no, I'm, I'm taking this. I'm, I'm going with this and stayed there for the next 40. 
No, I think I know what you meant. Like it's 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 not a twee album at all. It's no, way too discordant for that, if nothing that. else. Um, but I think no, I think you're right that there is a perception of some preciousness, if only because of the regard that this band is held in mm-hmm. by certain uh, or, or by its more diehard audience, I suppose. Um, so no, I like I I think I understood what you meant in that way. I didn't mean to suggest you thought it was like a twee pop album that you're getting into. Like that's the one. Um, in terms of the music itself, again, it's it's too discordant and there's too much happening for it to be like even chamber pop, even though it like kind of has some of those resonances in there. Um, I mean, I don't think you get the same version of the Decemberists or of the Mountain Goats or of Arcade Fire even if uh, Neutral Milk Hotel isn't around and as successful as they are, particularly in the aeroplane over the sea. Um Right, you probably still get those bands, but I think there's a a long lineage that this album draws, um, where nothing is ever going to sound quite like it. I don't think like no one's running to make this kind of lo-fi maximalism, which seems like a paradox, but I think is the best way to describe it. Um, but you know, as you were saying, Tim, I think. Right, with increased production, um, with perhaps a bit more t- purposeful tightness throughout, um, with, I don't know, just a, a bit more, I suppose, studio to the thing, um, or, or a bit more, um, right, just depth in the recording. Like, you're getting, uh, you see bands, you see albums that are definitely in conversation within the aeroplane over the sea, but there is a certain, you know, to go along with that just raw genuine emotion there's a, a an actual ramshackleness to the recording um this is part of a lo-fi move a broader lo-fi move in the late 90s in particular um going into the early 2000s where right and this is i think where connections to pavement could be made like they're sort of dipping their toe into that for a minute where i mean you you strip back the production not even wizardry, just the production, really, um, and try and create something that is more authentic as just, like, we put it to tape, this is what it is. Um, But the interesting thing with Neutral Milk Hotel, I think, is that, right, it is certainly, you can hear it in the in the album itself like it's very compressed in places, almost oppressively so on a couple songs, like, you are getting stuck in the middle of a lot of like reverb and just compressed sound um there's not a ton of differentiation between the tracks in terms of like depth it's sort of just everything happening at once and you can pick out all the different pieces it's not shoegazy in that way um but there's not like a ton of separation i don't think in the mix between stuff so it is sort of this kaleidoscopic um kind of like big wave of sound hitting you um but again, there's a lot of um, just variety in that too. You know, this is, I'd say at their base, uh, a folk indie band with some like psychedelic uh, tendencies or um, impressions, I suppose. Does that seem fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like just kind of at their base, I think that's it. Um, but then you're getting other stuff on this album, like, you know, Accordion, which is going to be the least weird one I mentioned here. Um, 
I think there's a theremin at some point, but there's also definitely singing saw, which is a, a hand saw played as music that sounds a lot like a theremin. Um, so there's definitely that, but I think there's both. Um, you get a xanthophone, and, which I don't actually know what that is. I probably should have looked at that. And Valuian pipes. Um, you're getting all kinds of weird instrumentation across this thing to just add... Um, I mean, the, the beauty of this album to me is that none of it becomes random. Like, it's not just random sounds. It's sounds that is building to uh, an actual emotional or tonal center. But I'll, I'll get into that more because Tim is laughing at the Zanzithophone, and I'm interested now. Okay, so there's that Bob's Burgers episode where Tina gets a crush on the delivery boy for the sandwich place, and he, like carries his melodica all the way around and like everyone's like oh god he's playing his melodica again if he had had a zanzithophone which looks like a, a small plastic saxophone i think this would have been it would have been an even better joke is what i'm saying like it it, it looks you can't play it and not look like an idiot is what i'm seeing basically which i think is is sort of appropriate for the for the for the album you just sort of you do it and it doesn't matter what anybody else says about it if it works it works i okay i definitely should have looked at it before i just did now and the comp is it's basically the saxaboom that jack black plays for some of tenacious d stuff <laughs> like that's the I, it's not quite it because the saxaboom is is decidedly a toy but uh they look pretty much the same. That's sort of what's going on here. Um, the Yulian Pipes is, for anyone unaccustomed, uh, a, a type of bagpipe. So we got the, what, what was the term for a collective of people playing the bagpipes again? Oh God, there was a collective term? What were yeah, they... it came up back in the corn uh, episode, the, and it was your new favorite episode. word, but apparently that didn't last, no. so <laughs> good, good job. thought you had found it yeah, the... <laughs> love that face i don't remember any of these like uh, i'm i'm googling like a poverty of pipers or uh or um no, no a... that's it that's it was that it i no, that wasn't what we said the first time but i don't care what else comes up okay. poverty of pipers okay. is... I, there was there was some other there was something i didn't think it was a it was a group i thought it was like some individual thing, but I will, I'll try to think about it. Well, that may have been it too. We're digging into the long history of the podcast. Cause that was like episode four or something, <laughs> six maybe. Um, so poverty of pipers shows up on in the aeroplane over the sea, which is a sentence that honestly makes total sense. And I can't believe that's not in every review now. Um, but all of that to say that this is a, an album that throws everything uh and i'm amazed there's not an actual kitchen sink and sees what sticks and most of it does and it's again it's a it's a kaleidoscopic thing it's a cacophonous thing that supplements the emotional center of this album um which I will add before I get into that. This this run the runtime here is about forty minutes, and it always feels like it's several hours to me, but in a good way. Like I don't feel like it's dragging on, but uh, it's just an album that I always feel like I'm a part of for way longer than it's actually on. 
um, in, in an immersive way. So, you know, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with this one and looking to listen to, it won't actually take you that long to get through it, but it may feel like you were sitting all day in this crazy world um, of in the aeroplane. So, conceptually, I want to start with the title itself. Um, and I want to be my rhetorical teacher self because we have in the aeroplane over the sea, which I will admit I am the first to uh, screw up the articles in that album title. Uh, I still do it on occasion, but it is in the aeroplane over the sea. We have the direct one here rather than an indirect in an aeroplane over the sea. All right, so even beyond the, the weird spelling of aeroplane is Tim mentioned which I have to keep pronouncing differently so you can hear it. Um, I, the, the the is what always stands out to me in the title because we're in a very specific place now um, or, or a very specific aeroplane over the sea. And yet we're completely unmoored from what that might mean. I, I mean, we never get an answer to what that actually means. Um, but just that that invoking of a direct article, that immediate specific sense of, of place and action and movement, uh, you're thrown into something particular immediately. And figuring out what this album means is its own cottage industry. Um, I'm not convinced Mangum knows what he meant at every point. Um, and he's, not notoriously, admirably, I think, like, <laughs> peppered with these questions always when he actually makes appearances, and uh, consistently, and for over 20 years now, it's just like, we'll answer with a yes or no, and then be like, yeah, you know, if you read it that way, you read it that way. Um, and there's sort of that admirable openness of like, I'll answer, but I'm not going to explain, um, which, you know, I value that in an artist. Um but we're thrown in that specific place that we never really get a sense of what that actually is or means. And that this is an album that is decentered um, chronologically. It's unstuck in time, if you will. I think this is the second or third episode, which I've been able to reference slaughterhouse five. So I'm rolling. Um, and it's center in so much as there is one is Anne Frank and the Holocaust. Here we go, Tim. Um, Mangum has talked about reading the diary of Anne Frank not long before this, and that becoming kind of a through line for songs that at their base are primarily about love and connection and uh, just trying to be with other people, um, trying to, there's a lot of body almost horror image across this thing, like trying to meld with someone else, um, whether that becomes uh, malicious intent or if that is a reflection of just some like pure feeling um, that wanting to be united and connected and fully together. Um, <clears throat> it's a lot of sexual imagery across this album as well. So right, it, it is one that is obsessed with that being together with that connection between people. Um, romantic historical um across time and space like in all these different ways it is one that is very searching for that kind of feeling um 
And that brings in a lot of not always uncomfortable, but imagery that just spans this time that really helps to decenter. Right, we have this potential historical moment or location in the middle, um, but everything fractures from there. So we have images of flying machines, of time machines, of the nuclear, of a nuclear holocaust itself, of a two-headed boy, which is the namesake of three different parts on the album, I think it is, um, and, and a two-headed boy in formaldehyde is the line. Um, O'Comley has all kinds of different... I love O'Comley. It's such a good song. Um, but has all kinds of just weird and uncomfortable and dream-like imagery um, in, the, in the middle of it. Um... Verse 3, for example, and <laughs> buckle up, everyone. Uh, your father made fetuses with flesh-looking ladies while you and your mother were asleep in the trailer park. Thunderous sparks from the dark of the stadiums, the music and medicine you needed for comforting. So make all your fat, fleshy fingers to moving and pluck all your silly strings and bend all your notes for me. And soft, silly music is meaningful magic. The movements were beautiful all in your ovaries. Uh, all of them milking with green fleshy flowers while powerful pistons were sugary sweet machines smelling of semen all under the garden was all you were needing when you still believed in me. Tim, what's that verse about? Offhand, uh, I would suggest that there's something about about reproduction. Um, sort of, I, I like the... I don't know, maybe there's a little Dylan Thomas in there. Maybe there's this sort of like green milking imagery. There's like this under Milkwood connection that, that you could make potentially. Um, but otherwise, I don't know. I don't either. That was sort of the trap. Um, no, I think you're right. That like right. There's obviously a lot of language about reproduction there or just production um, and this by the incomplete collapse of the industrial and the natural and the um, domestic, really, um, and different types of just uh, civilization, I suppose. Like, we have the, the move from the trailer park to the stadiums. We have the move from the pistons to the mountains, or to the garden, rather. Mountains is a different song. Um, and in the in, in the middle of this, and soft, silly music is meaningful magic, and like that always stands out to me as I don't think in the aeroplane over the sea is soft, silly music, but like I just love that line um, that even if it is soft and silly, even if it is unabashedly earnest and weird, and throwing in any instrument they could find and ramshackle and and jangly in its construction but not jangly in terms of like jangle pop which is a thing that is like purposefully put on but just dudes got in the studio and played some played some stuff and it came together how it came together like there's kind of a silliness to that um and i think that may be part of why this album is beloved by a lot of people and then not necessarily hated but i think there are other uh, you know, not a small group of people who are like, that's the one that like is most important to you. Why? Um, so, you know, maybe it's soft, silly 
music in that way, but like it's meaningful magic that it's creating, um, that it is itself able to create connections and um, is itself a reproduction of imagery, really. Um, and that's consistent across this album that it, it's very, I mean, it's stream of consciousness almost. It's very image based. Um, it, it's dreamlike. It's not attempting to make anything linear for listeners. Um, it's not attempting to make anything completely and readily sensible to listeners like that whole verse, but there's so much to play with there, so much to dig through. Um, but it really is like we're just getting a glimpse into someone's thought process and how they build connections and how they build connections between objects and memories and uh, visions and ideas and worries and hopes and dreams and all of these things. Um, and that layers over this want for a very real human connection. And that layers over this historical landscape that I'll get back to now, where it's an album about the Holocaust and about, about nuclear Holocaust as well. But it's also not at all about those. Um, but it uses that historical landscape to fracture, or that historical moment to fracture everything. Right, the fallout from a, a nuclear bomb. Um, right, the radiation from that. I mean, we can look at this. When, when we drop them on Japan, that's a real moment of historical break that becomes something new is happening afterwards because we just did the unthinkable. So there's that historical aspect to it. Uh, and there's the kind of mythic aspect to it, or, or not mythic, but the more, on, on Mangum's part, imagined one of... Right. What if that happens? What happens to those landscapes? They become irradiated. Um, they become broken. They become fractured. They're destroyed, and they have to rebuild from that. And it's a uh, a motley construction that that appears from that. And that's sort of how he's wading through his thoughts and all this imagery and how these right this unstuck chronology of the album is coming together. Um, so. And I, like it is an album about connection, about memory, about physicality, about dreaming, um, and about being together more than anything. And at the center of that is this very real historical moment that itself becomes kind of a kaleidoscope through which you see everything else. So our theme today is going to be myth and history and how other albums play with, um, you know, different, uh, different historical moments or just mythic imagery. Um, and, and how they use that to, right, to supplement whatever they're doing musically as well, much like I think Neutral Milk Hotel is doing here. Um, so that was, I don't know, probably the closest I've come to like an actual written introduction that I didn't actually write down, but to lead into a theme. But Tim, thoughts on this album, the theme, anything? I think my my only contribution to the the great the discourse of 2021 is that the image of being the only aeroplane as it were like there's something to be said for like i don't know maybe the title is in 1908 1909 when louis blario is flying over the channel and there are no other aeroplanes over the sea and that of course i think that would lead in nicely to the general unstuckness in time thesis that you've been laying out um, but otherwise, no, I, I just, I feel like this is one that's kind of worth experiencing and sitting with a little bit. And it's funny you mentioned the, the, the confusing lyrics from, <laughs> um, from like five minutes ago, 
because as I was listening, like the way that I listen to albums is wrong and I just sort of let things hit me that hit me. But that was like one of the things that like that exact like set of lines is the one that that kind of struck me as well. It was it was an interesting experience and maybe it's worth it to like, I don't know who else besides me this could even be new to anymore. But it, it's like it seems like it's worth it to just sort of let things hit you and stick to you the first time and then go back and play the translation game as often as one feels led afterward. I think it is an album that, well, first, I don't think there is a wrong way to listen to music, so I'm going to chide you for that real quick. <laughs> um, <clears throat> B, I guess not set up A, two, whatever. Um, I'm genuinely curious about this. I'm going to say this. Like, I think it's a thing, and I kind of do, but I don't actually know. Um, I feel like we're probably on the very tail end of generation or people for whom, like, this album definitely will come up like in your life at some point whether you've engaged with it or not different question but like it's something that you are vaguely familiar with um i don't know what its legacy is beyond us um i'm pretty sure i've said that of 90s albums in particular before on this um but this one especially like i think it is one that for particular demographics like it could very easily be one that just like is one of the most important albums in your life. Um, or it could be one that you see that from other people and you're like, why this one? And, and like, you kind of engage with it that way, but I don't know. Um, so I guess if you're out there and you're a younger listener and, and you have uh, thoughts or some connection to, I don't know that we have any of those, but um, to this album i'd love to hear um because i I genuinely do not know what like the lasting legacy of this one is going to be after um right after millennials are done writing the lists um people will always come and find it that's going to be true of every album but um i think it's too low at 43 um but i i would not be shocked if it ends up even lower in like 10 or 20 years just because at that point we're removed enough from it that its impact seems more, even more confusing. Um, but I don't know. That's a lot of genuine questioning for me there. So let's move into our replacement titles. Um, I suppose if you want to button on all of that in the airplane over the sea, magnificent album. You don't have to think it's a magnificent thing. Once you get through it, you may connect to it in the same way you may not, but like, it's just a really good listen. And there's a whole lot of world to dig into there. Um, so it's one that you can return to over and over and over. And there's always something new, um, or surprising or confusing, um, that you can <clears throat> dig into further. Yeah. I have, I, I just sort of thought about this, but like, we haven't, we haven't really talked about the title track all that much. And I feel like it's, I feel like it's worth noting that with all the lyrical density of this album, the the title track is like a really catchy and enjoyable piece of music. And like, I feel like it's very easy to sort of look at an album like this and say, well, it's it's returning to Anne Frank and, and it's returning to these really strange, um, opaque images, but I don't know. There's there's something about the the sound of jumping up for soft and sweet that just like this is this is a song that would be terrific on the radio as much as anything else would be terrific for your 
for your uh, close readings of, of the lyrics too. And, and I, I don't know, it's, it seems like it's worth mentioning that as well. Um, along with, with all of the other lore that goes with it. No, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's really important to, to note and remember that, right. As much of the density as I'm layering on here, which is going to be important to the theme in particular for the other ones, there's just good songs across this thing. Catchy song, like, these are guys who know how to write music. Um, and you're right. I don't want that to be lost in this discussion. The title track in particular, um, Two Headed Boy, I think, Colin 1945, um, the uh, King of Carrot Flowers suite, I think. Like, you know, the, the title track is probably the most immediately catchy one. Um, but there are songs across this thing that are. Even if you don't want to invest with it on this like dense mythic historical level, um, I think this is an album that a lot of people can just enjoy. Um, that can just kind of let wash over them, and like there are there are moments for everyone here. Um, but speaking of the title track, verse two, you know, it's not all dense imagery too. And one day we will die and our ashes will fly from the aeroplane over the sea. But for now we are young. Let us lay in the sun and count every beautiful thing we can see. Love to be in the arms of all I'm keeping here with me. That's just lovely imagery. And I think that's emotionally the core of the album. Like that's what it wants amidst all of this other swirling chaos. Um, one day we will die and our ashes will scatter and become part of the world. But for now, we are young. Let us connect. Let us lay in the sun. Let us bask in the beauty that the world does have. Um, and ultimately, you know, for all the, the the breaks that are happening, for all the unstuckness, for all the chaos, for all the density of the imagery, I think Mangum wants to return to that image. Like that's what should be at the heart of this album. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's true. Um, and I think that that also sets up the other two albums well that are returning to kind of a core emotional concept. Um, but there's a lot layered over that that I think enhances it in many ways. But um, it's important not to lose sight of right. there's a very easy kind of connection to make at the core of these albums. So we're going to look at Anais Mitchell's Hades Town. From 2010, I'm talking the album version, not the uh, Broadway show version, which it hasn't been made into. Um, and Hooray for the Riff Raff's 2017 album, The Navigator. Uh, I will say this and just move on. The Thermals, the body, the blood, the machine was in here for, since, the, since we made this list initially, which was, what, a year ago at this point? Mm -hmm. um, and something I should have known earlier but realized or re-remembered or whatever that um, one of the band one of the members of that band was um, is a uh, sexual predator essentially so the thermals have been dropped from this but if you're the type who does well separating art and artist very good album um, so maybe you want to check out the thermals maybe that's not for you I'm not gonna subject people to more talk on that um, but we put in Hooray for the Riff Raff, which, honestly, this is an album I wanted to get in somewhere anyway, so this worked out rather nicely. But let's start with Anais Mitchell and Hadestown. <clears throat> Tim, the musical expert of the show, which I like 
to think I have a pretty deep knowledge, but his surpasses mine. Has not listened to Hadestown, so let's all make fun of Tim first. <laughs> and now that we've had that pause, let's move on to Anais Mitchell, unless you wanted to defend your honor. <laughs> nah. Fair enough. It is a good musical, though, um, for anyone wanting to check out that. It expands, obviously, on the album because it has more space to do so. Um, and I'll talk about where it expands, but yeah. I will say I will say this, that there is a, there's a, a line in the musical listening for me that, like, when the movie watching really got intense, something had to, like, fall away a little bit. And this is, like... The musical itself is kind of right on that line, so like that was that. I think it just if it had if it had been made into a musical like eighteen months earlier, I think this would have been one of the obsessions that I have. But like there's a there's like a hard like 2015, 2016 line after that. It sort of gets a little tricky to to squeeze newer stuff in. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I think the musical comes out in 2016, I think. Yeah, so it's, 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 yeah, like it's like right on that line. Um, well, we'll still make fun of you just for the game, but that makes sense. Um, well, let's start with the album version, which um, like 55-ish minutes, I think. So it's certainly not taking up the CD runtime like it easily could because obviously it becomes a musical that is much longer and when Mitchell is composing it, she envisions it as uh, musical length or opera length. I think she's envisioning it originally as more of an opera. Um, so there's definitely that wealth of content that could be incorporated, but this is a, a pretty tight um, condensing of really the full story. Um, and, and I think it works really well on its own. This is one that, this is an album I came to not too long after its release, so I knew about it several years before the musical, so it was fun in that way hearing how it got expanded. Um, but obviously now you can choose to listen in whichever direction you want. Um, but let's talk about the 2010 album here. In general, it is a slight recasting of the Orpheus um, Eurydice myth, where... A lot of the same stuff still happens, um, but basically Hell is reimagined as Hades Town, which is sort of ambiguously still underground, um, but really is an industrial ghetto. So this is, it's set during the Great Depression. So we have that immediate historical movement and context. And Hades Town becomes this uh, just exemplar of capitalist exploitation of, of predatory corporate and industrial behavior. Um, Hades himself is the factory and city owner. So it's this kind of apocalyptic vision of corporate city, essentially, um, where Hades is, uh, is, is king of the realm, is the uh, owner and CEO and able to prey upon all of these people in need who have nothing, who what little scraps he provides, they have to be grateful for because there's nothing else that they know for them. Um, so it, it's, I mean, it's kind of a perfect, I think, transcription in that way of just how to make this not just myth, but historical, that you just take hell and make it this 
dystopic Great Depression landscape that was real. Those are real. There's those are still real places. Um, entire cities, in some cases. So, I think Anais Mitchell does really, really well. Um, like the beats of the story uh, of the myth are basically the same, but just altering that setting um, so that it is immediately connectable with. Um, I think Mitchell does especially well doing that. Um, but historically, that's the moment that we find ourselves in. So we're in the Great Depression, though, as I reference some lines and songs throughout this, you may think that, oh, that doesn't have to be the Great Depression. That could have been yesterday. Um, and I think that's um, another powerful aspect of the album, that we are in that mode, but it is one that's, it, it doesn't have to be in the 1930s. Um, this, this stuff is still happening today. But we're going to get... Uh, Eurydice down in hell, essentially, down in Hadestown. Orpheus has to, doesn't have to, wants to go fetch her um, and is challenged by Hades. Make your way back to the surface without turning around, um, without looking. And once both of you pass the threshold, you're out. And Orpheus makes it almost all of the way. Um, in the myth, I believe he crosses the threshold to the real world, um, but she doesn't quite make it out yet, and he turns around, finally consumed with doubt, and she is cast back into hell. Same thing happens here. Like, again, the beats are pretty much all the same here. I do think there's more focus on Persephone on the album, um, and that's interesting in its own way, how she is kind of captive on her own and trying to create this little oasis in Hadestown. Um, but just her interactions with Hades are also interesting. But again, like we're basically getting the same myth here, but cast into a specific historical moment. Um, so that's a lot of what I think how the theme is thread through this album. Um, I'm going to talk about it a bit more, but anything so far, Tim? Um, no, just that it is sort of interesting that the the 2010s appear to have been a particularly... Uh, fecund time for for Orpheus and Eurydice stuff. Um, I know that after Portrait of a Lady on Fire came out, my my interpretation of that particular story had to to go in a slightly different direction, or at least that was a, a new enough interpretation of me that I I found it more interesting this time out. Um, being a being more of a Bible guy anyway, uh, I, I had always sort of preferred Lot and Lot's wife in, in this particular archetype. Um, but I know that I'm definitely more interested in this now than I was, like, not to use the exact same words, but like 18 months ago before I had seen uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So this one is already kind of scratching an itch. I also am more of a Lot's wife guy, in so much as that's a thing, but right course there's a slaughterhouse connection with that so uh you know i'm predictable but hades town sounds like the thing for me that portrait of a lady on fire was for you where um this is just something that i started hearing differently not not to like go completely tangential not tangential but not to follow too much of an aside, but I am curious, like, what changed for you after that movie? Uh, first of all, I want to note that some people on the internet are wife guys, but we are lots wife guys, which is a very, very distinct set indeed. Uh, very elect. 
Um, the interpretation of it as Orpheus turns around uh, because as an artist he is drawn to the perfect ideal of something and the memory of something rather than the actual living, breathing, doing of it, which is really stark and has this this interesting like misogynist like turn to it um one that's less about his doubt and more about his professional identity or his gender performance or something like that um that just sort of like opened it up for me a little bit it's it's funny about older stories like that is that you've so often you so often get used to the telling of it that like it's easier to to find extra meaning in stuff you read, even if you're like 15 or 16, than like the Greek myths that you get when you're four or five. It's it's funny how how that it somehow never occurred to me until I watched that movie. But then again, I don't know. You just sort of grow up with it, and that's that original interpretation sticks. So I think Hades Town. I like that. That's really interesting. But plays certainly with the, the not, not even over undertones, just the misogynistic tones of this myth to some degree. Um, I think it does still attribute doubt to Orpheus. Um, and we'll get to that in, t- in the end. Um, so it's not totally reversing that, but just right in spending more time with Eurydice and Persephone in particular, um, we have kind of a recentering of the myth a little bit. Um, <clears throat> And right around that, Hades is running everything, or, or this is cast as Orpheus's journey. So there is, like, it's playing with that right, great man kind of mythic thing. Um, and crucially, I think it ends with Eurydice and Persephone singing. But we'll get to that in a moment. I think what it what it decenters even more is this is not a play of the gods, really. Um, Eurydice is still tempted by Hades, but because we're in this Great Depression scene, but just because we're in this depression scene, uh, it becomes a story of love in the time of capitalism, perhaps we can say. Um, The opening track, Wedding Song, um, is Eurydice and Orpheus talking. Um, They want to get married. They are in love. But the concern throughout that song is that they don't have enough money. They don't have anything. They don't have material wealth. Um, and how are they going to be married? How are they going to live without that? Um, and at the beginning, there is that um, right, that investment in art, the artistic profession and vision of it all, because Orpheus is basically saying, well, music will bring us everything we need. Um, he's a musician here. Um, and... Right, like that's noble and naive at the same time, and it the album kind of immediately punctures that like idealistic bubble, um, and eventually what tempts Eurydice down into Hades Town is Hades coming up and saying, "I can make sure, I can promise you material wealth and, and things and objects and stuff," um, which I can say glibly like that, but when you have nothing. Right, that's actually tempting. Um, I can promise you some security. Um, just I can, I can, I can promise that you are not destitute, and that's ultimately what tempts Eurydice down. In this case, down to Hades Town, and 
we see later on in, in Our Lady of the Underground in particular, Persephone, um, I said, trying to offer these kind of oases in Hadestown. She's offering kind of elements of the natural world. Hadestown is barren and stripped and totally industrial and removed from wind and fire and sky and just like water and these very natural elements and that's what persephone is bringing um right and that is treated as kind of a mythic thing like persephone able to control elements in some way but if you think about ghettoized areas um if you think about totally impoverished areas if you think of flint in 20 15 or 16 or whatever it was when it came out that their water was poisoned essentially and how that's true of a lot more places in the u.s in particular um how right, these impoverished and overcrowded and um oppressed areas are basically devoid of those kind of natural open free elements um that's a song that is framed as mythic um, but becomes very easy to layer onto the historical moment of the album um, and the reach of the album i think as well um but eurydice is tempted down we have the whole orpheus journey journey he comes down he tries to save her he leads her out almost the whole way and turns around and again i think it does ascribe to him doubt um i mean the song is called doubt comes in so i think very literally it's you know he 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 hadn't heard anything. He doesn't know that she's back there. He just doesn't trust the whole way. Um, and then the album ends with "I Raise My Cup to Him," which is a really interesting song, I think, because it's Eurydice and, and Persephone saying, "We raise our cup to Orpheus." Basically, he tried. Um, he faced Hades. He faced this corporate overlord um who could have easily destroyed everyone uh and he he made the journey he did it despite all of the warnings along the way um he was committed he tried he did the best he could and it didn't work but we raise our cup to him and this i think risks being very uh overly sentimental shall we say but I think Keeley in that in that song we have kind of this lilting waltz happening and uh, Persephone and Eurydice their vocals are breaking like it sounds like they're on the verge of crying not not openly weeping perhaps but crying like there's a very there's a real ache to both of their vocals um, and, and there's breaks in their pitches and they're kind of fluctuating up and down like you can hear that little flutter of their voices and musically you know, we have kind of that lilting quality, but there's some, they're, they're light. They're not um, blaring. They're not oppressive to the song, but we have kind of these industrial strings behind it. We have these kind of siren flashes or just like blur, uh, blurps of noise. Um, and the song ends with kind of a faded wail. Like there's a little bit of a drone at the end and you have to really listen to hear it. It's not obvious, but uh, that kind of fades out and that's how the song ends. So there is this... I think this is a song that is more about defeat than exaltation, um, but it's exalting to find meaning, really, um, because it has to. But I think it is also clear at the same time that Orpheus failed and resigned them to this fate. Um, and we raise our cup to him 
because otherwise, you know, we live in complete dyspepsia. Um, but I think the music of, of the song there is making clear that this is, it's, it's more complicated, it's more heartbroken, and it's more um, angry and perhaps roiling than lyrically what we're hearing. Um, so I think those are the ways that it uh, recasts the myth a bit um, to fit with, right, it's historical moment, to fit with kind of those thematic qualities. Um, right, and, too, and it's easy to read that as kind of a feminist statement of the men aren't going to lead you out. Um, they will make it out, and they will be free, and they will be happy on the earth, but still we will be imprisoned and stuck. So again, like those are the ways I think it's twisting that kind of the, the misogyny of the tale, um, even though it does still ascribe to Orpheus. Like, he doubted. Um, he was a dummy, basically. Um, but still, he makes it out, and he's okay, and yet we are punished for his transgression. Um, so I do think it's really important that the album ends there. Um, Musically, probably should have started with this, but we'll do it now. Um, I said Mitchell, right, envisioned this as a musical or as an opera. Mitchell is um, it, one of the foremost artists in right, Americana artists going right now. Um, deeply, deeply adept and good at folk music, ro uh, roots music, that kind of Americana. Um, and, and is if you read my year-end recaps um, for 2020. I had the album by Bonnie Light Horseman in there. Um, Mitchell is part of that group, and it's basically three folk musicians who took a bunch of American standards and um, just like, right made them their own. So she's, she's operating in that vein, and she's very, very good at it. So kind of the, the core of this album, I think, is still that folk. Like, it's a folk opera in that way, or folk musical. Um, but we do get her bringing in a lot of jazz compositions throughout. We get some swing, we get some big band stuff. We get a lot of these kind of really important uh, genres to American music, as we might understand it. So it's an expanded sense of Americana. I think it's a more total, um, it's not just the kind of rootsy Appalachian folk thing. Um, it's not just those, those standards, but we're getting Right? A lot of the stuff that comes out of the South and New Orleans in particular, right? That jazz, that swing, that big band, that um, kind of early blues, R&B, ache stuff. Um, and this is also a, um, what's the word I want here? The use it for ensemble. There we go. Ensemble album. <laughs> um, Mitchell is playing Eurydice, uh, Justin Vernon, who you know is Bon Iver, if you don't know his real name, is playing Orpheus. Um, Annie DeFranco, another just absolute standout in this this current folk scene with Mitchell, is playing Persephone. Greg Brown, who has the... I, I don't know a way to describe it, but like deliciously deep bass vocal is playing Hades, and it's perfect. Um, and... Um, Oh, let me. Ben Knox Miller. I almost called him the wrong first name. I'm glad I looked down first. Um, ben Knox Miller is playing Hermes, um, who is the perfect, like, insane prospector conductor voice for Way Down to Hades Town, which is this, like, big band journey into Hades Town, as it suggests. Um, 
that that's a great song absolute rousing moment and and miller is is very good throughout in the musical version i think the stuff with hermes i think in particular is expanded um he gets a lot more of introduction stuff to set up before we get to wedding song and onward um and there's other stuff along the way obviously that's expanded but if you're going to the musical version there's more runway into the thing um so that's the ensemble we have going on. I think all of, vocally it's all perfectly cast. Um, but besides that, that Mitchell is so adept at these right, um, distinctly American genres and is telling us a story of the Great Depression um, and is telling us a story of predatory capitalism and is telling us a story of how men never have to face the consequences that women have. We get this right this this greek myth made into an american one that's uh supplemented by american music american genres um that is that becomes kind of a distinctly national and historical vision not that it couldn't apply elsewhere right the stuff is happening in, in countries all over the world um but i think part of what mitchell does so well not just transcribing the myth itself but making it this distinctly american thing um down to the music itself that's being utilized and being played. Um, so that's that's Hades Town. I think that's all I have about it. But anything about that one, Tim? Uh, I think it's it's cool that it's not just uh, taking a story and sticking like identifiable music on it. Like I think it would be very easy, and and I think this is the kind of thing that happens already. Um, like, for example, there's a version of the Ring Cycle that's all, like, country-western music, um, and I don't know that it does too, too much besides just sort of say, like, what if this were country-western instead of Wagner? But there's there's something interesting about it in taking these sort of classically American sounds, but also having a classically American corporation villain, you know, on top of it, which is not something that the makers of the original myth could have possibly imagined that there really is something new there that's more than just form i i, I always appreciate that yeah this is an uh, this is a version of the myth that could not have existed when when the greeks wrote it um and i'm with you i think that's always the best kind of update where there's something essential about it to whatever time it is made in um but but yeah you're right like there is <clears throat> There's something that like could only be part of it because it was made when it was, um, and again too, I don't, I don't want to layer this one too much in density. I think this is just a, a great listen throughout, um, much like in the aeroplane over the sea. It's it's much less discordant. There's not as many weird instruments. Um, you know, ultimately it is going to go back to kind of those those folksy and uh, American roots sounds. Like that's going to be the the core of it throughout. Um, but if you're just looking to listen and kind of hear a story, um, or just kind of vibe out for 50 minutes, I do think it's a great album for that as well. And there's a lot of just catchy songs in here, great melodies, great hooks. Um, and the vocal performances, I said, especially like even just listening through to those and seeing how they embody the characters is, it's a fun time on its own. Um, there's a song in the middle, I'll say this and then move on called why we built the wall, which is Hades. To, it has a, like a chain gang beat to it, um, and it's Hades just telling all the people in Hades Town, 
we build the wall because outside of this place it's even worse. So essentially we see him gaslighting the entirety of Hades Town. Um, and I'm bringing this up just because I said at the beginning, some at some moments you'll think, oh, that could have been yesterday. And I forgot to mention that along the way. And that, that I think in particular is the, uh, hmm, this album is strangely uh, pertinent still. Anyway, let's move on to the other one here. Uh, and this is Hooray for the Riff Raff and their 2017 album, The Navigator. Um, Hooray for the Riff Raff is a band, but it's one of those where um, it's kind of one constant member um, and she's doing most of the writing. And certainly the other people are important instrumentalists and help her create these landscapes, but it is kind of those like, right, the one person is kind of synonymous with the band. And that person is Alinda Segarra, who uh, Puerto Rican, raised in New York City, and then moved to New Orleans, where a lot of her early music career is, um, basically cut her teeth on, right, New Orleans blues and jazz and folk and Americana stuff again. So similarities to Mitchell here, really. Um, and again, that's where she honed her craft and her chops is, is there. And a lot of her earlier albums are really good examples of that kind of music. Um, but for The Navigator, she expands that palette a bit um, and moves us back to literally but also it totally is New York City. Like, that's where this album is set. She just doesn't say that. She just calls it the city. Um, and, and with that move away, like, right out of New Orleans, thinking about the place where she grew up, um, thinking about its ties to Puerto Rico then as well, um, we have an expanded palette, an expanded vision of what Sagata can do with her music, which certainly she was expanding Right, what folk and Americana can do anyway with a Caribbean vision, with a feminist vision. Right, there, there is more expansiveness there. Um, but just opening up, so this isn't totally roots music stuff. Um, we have a lot of Latin and Caribbean flair across this thing. Um, a lot of different, again, Spanish and, and Latin music styles that come in. We have, I think, a lot of moments that sound like just uh, American indie or rock artists um and i'll mention a few of those throughout um but we have kind of this collage to the whole thing that tracks or that that is in itself kind of a, a historical amalgamation of genres that Sagara can pull in can do um so in that way we have her move from these more classical American styles, like that's still the base, um, but but layering other stuff on top of that. So we have kind of that historical aspect to it as well, similar to what Mitchell is doing, like, but but more expansive even. Um, and this is another. Um, it, it's not imagined as a musical or an opera necessarily. It could become one easily. Um, it is the type of story that could be adapted to that, but it's not imagined as that initially. Um, it's essentially a play in two acts. Um, and the first act is our protagonist, character, narrator, whatever you want to call her, uh, Navida Negron, and her growing up in the city, us getting visions of her life in the projects and of yearning to escape, of wanting to be out, of, of having dreams that go beyond this city that to her is now rote and boring and oppressive and just getting out would be ultimately what really helps her live her life the way she wants to 
And in the middle of the album, I won't get too much specifically into this, but basically she's, she's put under a spell and falls asleep for 40 years um, and then wakes up in the city. Everything is different. Everyone she knows is gone. Um, the places, her old haunts, so to speak, are now actually haunted to her. Um, it's this feeling of intimate familiarity um, and yet utter difference. So all these places that you you knew and lived in and went to and all these people you knew, those spaces are just occupied differently, are, are changed, are at once reminding you of all your memories and yet feel you feel like a ghost walking through these things. They're hollowed out in some way. Um, and as the album makes that shift, tonally it becomes something very different. And we'll get into that in a second. But just in terms of the first half, I think this is the one that draws a lot more connections to kind of American versions of Indian rock in particular. Um, the Well, the opening track is Entrance, and it's kind of an introduction, a la musical. Um, it's actually a very lovely harmony. I really like that setting of the scene. But then we get into Living in the City, which is kind of a barroom blues type thing. Um, it's not as like sad or depressed sonically, um, but it does have that right kind of that twine to it. It has that sort of searching but um, but lilting quality to it. Um, but you know we're we're getting kind of a um, I don't know Sp Springsteen has played in a bar maybe, um, and. It's about, right, it sets the scene of her life in the projects, um, and we get an immediate sense of place, of the city, of who this person is, um, and then that takes us into Hungry Ghost, which sounds to me a lot like a Heartland Rock Tron, or Heartland Rock track. Um, it's this very expansive, um, there's some synth in there, but kind of those wide open guitar and synth lines. Um, it's it's kind of the, a perfect kind of track for traveling with um, because it is about that I'm a hungry ghost. I need more than this. I need to be outside, right? It has that, that deep yearning to it. Um, and we move through to um, Life to Save, which sounds kind of like a Bob Seger track. Um, so again, we're getting a lot of these, uh, like, earnest heartland rocky type things or, or type artists or sound or compositions um to the first half of this album which makes perfect sense because it is one of trying to get away from the city um and that right all of the, the artists i've referenced here are perfect for that of trying to get away from a place trying to get somewhere new to live more authentically um and that's what um what navita is is trying to do on this first half so i think Again, in that half, you hear a lot more of this cigar purposefully relying more on genres that American audiences in particular are going to immediately understand as ones of escape or, or trying to get out of, of, of deep feeling of needing to be away from somewhere um, and, and to live more authentically when you are away. Because you're being oppressed in some way. And that's kind of the first half of the album. Now, the second half of the album, there's key shifts in a lot of ways. Um, we still get some moments where I think we can hear references to um, like indie stuff in particular. Like I think on, uh, I think Settle, <laughs> in Settle we hear 
not uh, an inconsequential amount of like arcade fire or funeral in particular, like that sort of uh, anthemic searching. Um, in Recon Beach, um, some of the guitar parts in that, or riffage, I suppose, it's not a guitar melody necessarily, um, but more just kind of squawks in and out, but like there's some wolf parade to that, um, similar tones there. So, right, so we're getting those those little moments, but really the core of the second half is that expansion to Caribbean forms, to Spanish forms, to Central American forms, Latin forms, whatever you want to call it, all of these different types of uh, new music that is closer to Sagara's um, family history, um, her Puerto Rican upbringing. Um, so stuff that is popular in Puerto Rico or that makes a lot of Puerto Rican music, that's what's going to really drive the second half, the second half of songs on this album. Um, so we have this inversion where it's you still get these moments or references to... Um, you know, typically white rock, white indie male music um, that has, right, that kind of layers onto these songs of want and of searching. Um, we get moments of those still, but that gets flipped into something that is more um, relevant to, or not relevant to, but that soundtracked basically Sagara's upbringing um, and her family history. Another moment, uh, well, we'll get to that song in a second. Um, I think the other key difference here is that, well, we have some song, most of the songs really, I suppose, on the second half are about Navita wandering through uh, this city that is known and completely unknown at the same time. Uh, and we get hazier, dreamier kind of compositions um, where, again, she is sort of, she goes from the hungry ghost trying to get out to a, a ghost in. Um, in a place that is no longer hers or not the one that she knew. So we have that happening, but more than that, it be the second half becomes a real reflection on colonialism, on diaspora, on, um, on racial and cultural oppression, on a, a lot of these things instead, where Navita is recognizing gentrification. Um, is recognizing diaspora, how all of her people are separated, is recognizing that this place she wanted to get away from was actually a home, in a way, um, or, or had, it's not Puerto Rico, it's the city, but it has elements of home, it is what you knew. Um, and so, instead of trying to get out, it becomes this want, not, not a nostalgic one necessarily, of wanting to go back, um, but of finding a particular unity um, of your people in particular, but of oppressed minorities and demographics in general, uh, and in moving forward in in that way. Um, and that's Palante is the song that really drives that all home. We'll get to that in just a second, though, because I do want to go back to um, Rican Beach, which I think the second half in general um, is, is kind of mid-tempo throughout. Like, it's less insistent than the first half, perhaps, um, but, or, or less, how do I want to put this? It's less insistent in the way that we might think of, right, those, let's say, teenage, young adult songs of Escape, um, where those become very driving. The second half is very assured. It's very, it's insistent in that way, um, 
but that's it. Like it stays in whatever tempo it's in. It's it's com- it's more confident in that way. Um, so I think that's important to the thematic vision as well. But Recon Beach starts introducing ideas of uh, what white people stole, essentially. Our language, our land, our neighbors, and a particularly evocative image. Um, right, they stole all those things from us and took them and left us to die on the beach. Um, or, or in Puerto Rico, in this case. Um, and so we have... That imagery of cultural stealing, but I think that becomes important, particularly important when we're considering what I've been saying about the music of this album. That American music is not white for the most part. It stems from from black music in particular. Um, it stems from Caribbean and even Central American music. Like there's a lot of the, from from African music as well. Um, Right, blues and rock and R and B and um, you know hip hop. A lot of these things that we we think about as American music all come not from white communities. Um, so I think musically, as Segarra is finding her way back to um, right the music of her Puerto Rican upbringing, of where she lived in New York City, um, that flipping is important with the idea that as white communities are gentrifying the city, which is what we get in 14 floors and settle. Um, as my family, my, um, right, my people are being left dead on the beach or are being, um, oppressed or stolen or, or kept down. Um, they are, and also being spread out into that diaspora that right. Culturally we're becoming diffuse. Um, but the album, instead of escaping, and the second half moves back to to sense of well, we need to come together and move onward um, in that way, and that's where Palante comes in, which translates best as onwards or forwards, um, and it's the centerpiece of the activism on this album, and it opens with these visions of very small things that become a, an important part of the American dream as we understand it, um, and the the constant reframe there is. Um, Segura saying, I, just, I want to be something, essentially. Um, the opening here, I just want to go to work and get back home and be something. I just want to fall and lie and do my time and be something. I just want to prove my worth on the planet Earth and be something. I just want to fall in love, not fuck it up and feel something. These very minute, basic things that um, are sad, in a way. Like, I just want to go to work and get back home. Like, that's not a particularly, um, I don't know, ideal vision, perhaps. Like, it is one that is very much ingrained in the culture of, of work that we do have. Um, but just that idea of being something and, like, the simplicity of those rendered as essential, but removed from a particular American dream, um, treated more as as rights really as things that everyone should have that I should have the basic respect and right of going to work and coming back home and proving my worth and falling in love and not fucking it all like right all of these things rendered in a sort of vital simplicity I think um this is a song of several parts and in the middle there's the incorporation of Pedro Pietri who was um Puerto Rican, so Puerto Ricans raised in New York, um, poet and 
kind of a big name in that scene in New York City. Um, and there's a recording of his spoken word poetry in the middle of this that sets up the the final kind of suite of it, um, which is a call out of a lot of different names and events and things. So just to read from the outro here, from El Barrio to uh, Arecibo Palante, from Marble Hill to the ghost of Emmett Till Palante, to Juan Miguel Miogros Manuel Palante, to all who came before we say Palante, and it goes on and on from there. So, right, names, there are particular events and things referenced before, um, from the biblical to the constitutional to just, um, uh, you know, everyday stuff. Um, and that it ends with this calling to all of these different people um, and to say onward and forward. Um, it, that's the culmination of the narrative of the album, that it's one right? we have a, a character here in Navita, but it's basically, it seems like, Sagara, who is moved to New York, has this community, but thinks it is not home, wants to escape that, and, and communicates this via more American forms of music. Um, and then through some sheer coincidence, through a curse, through a spell, is thrown 40 years into the future. Um, and there's a line in Settle, I think it is, that it's basically, they took it from us while we were asleep. Um, so of course, in the album here, that's for 40 years, but even this kind of overnight, like, stuff just changes and eventually you wake up one morning and it's gone. It's not yours anymore. Um, so that idea of seeing these places you used to know utterly changed and utterly taken and perverted and corrupted. And from there moving back into um, Caribbean, Spanish stuff, Puerto Rican music in particular, um, and building that into this vision of unity um, and sense of the city can be this place um, and that we move onward and forward here and that this is home in a way. And so I think that tracks pretty well with Sagarda's movement, right? Not understanding New York maybe as home, going to New Orleans, uh, really, again, cutting her teeth on these uh, American roots genres. Um, and becoming very good at those and adding her spins to those, but now coming back and expanding this palette on her own um, to be something more expansive, to be something um, more unified um, to the person that she is, to the family that she has, to um, those who she identifies with more, um, to have this kind of thing to take forward and to be unique to you that is not gentrified or corrupted or perverted in some way. And the album ends with finale, which um, really what I want to say here is basically a Calypso track. So I think, right, this just utter taking into, we're separated from indie here because indie's not doing Calypso stuff. Um, but that, right, the heart of rediscovering that kind of music or that part of culture um, and understanding how that can, can be anywhere, that like that can be part of home no matter where it is. Um, I think I'll save that bit for the spiel, but yeah, that's that's essentially the navigator. Anything on that, Tim? This is not one that I've got like any kind of familiarity with, so I am 
understanding this one brand new from from what you're you're saying here. I do not have the benefit of of you know like Orpheus and Eurydice. I guess there's there's something sort of interesting to be to be thought about and like this is like Rip Van Winkle times four, I guess, or times two. I forget exactly how long old Rip uh, takes his nap, but like the idea that you can fall asleep and like miss the revolution basically is, is sort of like being implied here as well, which, which I find appealing, like that if you just sort of like let your guard down for a second, all of a sudden everything is different and you have to like rebuild stuff that you, when you went to sleep, you felt pretty good about it still being there. That's, it's very compelling. Um, I don't know. There's, I don't think the, I don't think the music itself is necessarily going with this particular, um, this particular feeling so much, but it's interesting. Like, I don't, I don't think about Springsteen or, or Seeger or Calypso certainly (laughs) as being like traditionally sad stuff, but there is certainly a lot of like sadness that's like permeating the, the album. It sounds like. Yeah. And I think, Oh, by the way, this is a double rip. Um, as it were, double rip, double rip. Um, I think, what was I going to say here? Yeah, echoing what you were saying a bit that, right, you, you you fall asleep just for a second and you miss the moment, or 40 years, whatever it is, and you miss the moment. Um, I think, too, we, we get a sense that, right, that need to escape a community that you do have um, because it is oppressed and feels wrong and feels taken, um, that kind of plays into the hands of Right, this this type of whether it's physical or economic um, colonialism kind of plays in that to the, into that as well. Just trying to escape that poten- that potential for a unified place, for a unified community, for um, a collapsing of diaspora in some way. And the second album, or the second half, is building its way back to that vision um, because it did miss that moment. Um, it missed it in trying to escape it, and it missed it in being asleep for forty years. So that kind of understanding of return. Anything else you want to hear about this or any of the albums? Or are you ready for spiel? No, I think we can go for it. All right. Our spin entry for today, number 43 on their list is Dromel Cotel's In the Aeroplane Over the Sea. Uh, musically, a very accessible album, I think, but kind of notoriously or excitingly, depending on who you are, a... <laughs> very much inscrutable album um, that is about Anne Frank and the Holocaust and also is not at the same time. The emotional core of it is this want for connection and of beauty while we are alive, of just being together when we can, because someday it will end, um, and, and we know that. But layered on top of that is... Um, historical breakage a lot of historical fracture visions of the future of time machines and flying machines that also could be references to da vinci's studies so right we're we're in time very much um decentered and yet it, it does come back to this moment of holland 1945 perhaps of world war ii of the holocaust of that kind of early mid-century period um and it's a lot of scattered imagery and memories and dreams and visions um, befitting a nuclear fallout. Um, Kaleidoscopic, collages, broken, 
fractured, however you want to put it together. Um, it's kind of stream of consciousness in that way. That's that's it's feeling and memory and dreams uh, refracted through the lens of of Holocaust and nuclear fallout. Um, so the historical moment that is is part of it. Um, supplements the emotional core or the feeling in that way um, and yet is something that helps render that more vividly and is also not essential to understanding some of the feelings so it's a particular usage of history and of myth that I think makes the album something more um, that that again helps support its emotional and thematic center in some way. And so I've offered Tim two albums that I think do a lot of the same. Um, and the first one is Anais Mitchell's Hades Town, her 2010 album that becomes a musical in 2016, I think it is. Um, that is envisioned by Mitchell initially as something that could be a musical or an opera. Um, but here we get kind of a 50, 55 minute version of it. And it's a not a retelling, a, a transcribing of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth um, that plot-wise plays a lot of the same beats. Um, we have Eurydice taken down to hell, or Hades Town in this case. We have Orpheus going to get her to save her. We have the challenge to Orpheus to lead her back out and do not look back until both of you are across the threshold. He cannot. Doubt creeps in, and he looks back right at the very end, and uh, Eurydice is cast back down into Hades Town and kept forever while uh, Orpheus is up is on Earth, um, is outside of it, and free to do whatever. Um, it plays a lot of those same beats, but it, it places the story in the Great Depression uh, in the U.S. in particular. Hell becomes Hades Town, which is an industrial ghetto, really, a corporate city that is ruled over with iron fist by Hades, um, where everyone living in it is a cog in a larger machine, and given the 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 barest minimum to actually live and survive and subsist um, while they work in this place, and are gaslit to think that. This is the best place that exists. Everything outside will be worse. You will not have protection. You will not have the material uh, reality and pittance of wealth that I'm providing you. That you're best off here. And Eurydice is, is tempted down into this um, because she is poor, because she has nothing, because Orpheus has nothing, because she is worried about that reality um, and does not see it for the trap that it is. Um, so that economic reality layered over this that fits very well with the Great Depression, um, but fits just as well now. And the so we have that part of the, the history layered onto it and kind of the inverting or subverting perhaps of the mythic quality, particularly with how we understand Orpheus's journey um, and how we understand the role of Eurydice and Persephone in particular, that the album ends with those two singing, lamenting, really, um, pouring, um, or raising a cup, rather, to to Orpheus, um, and yet that song, that last track, feels very somber, feels unsettled, feels um, defeated, rather than excited or exulting, um, and we get that vision of Orpheus is free, he made the mistake, he transgressed, he... Uh, and in doing so, he gets to be free up on Earth, but has imprisoned Eurydice in 
city's town forever. Um, and Persephone is stuck down here as well. So we do get this ending that subverts the the myth in that way, or, the, or that introduces or inscribes the misogyny in a clearer way. Um, and with all of that, Mitchell is writing from a lot of classic American forms, uh, you know, roots music, folk, um, jazz, swing, big band stuff, um, a lot of these kind of traditional forms of American music, bringing those all together into this ensemble album and making this a particularly American thing in that way, from the economic reality, from the social reality, um, and down into the music, um, right? That the Americanness of it seeps into the bones of this thing from a myth that is decidedly Greek. Um, so Mitchell's um, well-honed forms are made even more classical with kind of the musical opera construction, particularly the opera vision of it. Um, and in a way, Hades Town, in addition to becoming this distinctly American thing, um, becomes a story of the story of those forms as much as anything. Um, and how to bring those all together, how they create this vision as well. Uh, and the second option here is Hooray for the Riffraff and their 2017 album, The Navigator, which another story, concept album, that follows our, our protagonist, Nevita Negron, in two acts. The first one, uh, first half of the album, this want to escape the city, which is a thinly veiled analog for New York City. Um, songs that sound more typically American rock or American indie. Um, we get Springsteen, we get Seeger, we get, you know, as I was saying earlier, kind of Arcade Fire stuff, who I recognize is not American, but you're insane if you think they're not operating with some Heartland Rock type stuff. Um, you know, we're getting a lot of, of those types of songs that signal readily to most of us escape of freedom, of wanting to get out, of needing to escape something oppressive, um, which is understandable. And, but that turns in the second half after Navida is um, put under a spell, falls asleep for 40 years and wakes up in the city again to see it utterly transformed and yet int intimately familiar. Um, all these places she knows and lived in and occupied um, have been gentrified, have been stolen, have been perverted, have been corrupted in some way from the ways in which she understood them, the projects in which she grew up. Um, they've been neutralized to some degree. And so as much as anything, this album becomes one of awareness of you fall asleep for one second and you miss the moment of of unity, of revolution, of, of bringing together. And then that want to escape, you're missing it as well. And so it's an album that builds to kind of the centerpiece of Palante, where it's calling out um, names of um, not just Puerto Ricans in New York City, um, but of several different races and cultures and um, mon minority groups in particular, um, important figures in those histories, martyrs to some degree, um, and calling to them and to everyone, Palante, onward or forward, um, that this is the moment of togetherness. And it does so, communicates this also through the increased inclusion and, and reliance on, to some degree, of uh, more Puerto Rican music forms, um, of stuff, 
stuff like salsa, so more Latin and Spanish ones as well. Salsa, uh, we have kind of the calypso ending, uh, just an expansion of the musical palette um, from Sagara's own training in New Orleans in particular, um, as she comes back to New York City and realizes, I tried to escape this, but really there's something here that needs to be unified um, and that needs to be expanded upon. Um, and so the navigator becomes a navigation of that really as much as anything so it's cigar's own journey of attempt to assimilate and then recognition of a need to unite um various diasporas into something new that can move onward and move forward so yeah tim hooray for the riffraff or anais mitchell well i'm gonna sound like i'm on uh on the debate stage and talking in the 2016 democratic primary here because as far as I can tell, this is, this is really a debate about getting people Medicare for all, or it's a, it's a debate about identity politics. Um, joking aside, I, I think Town is the one that I have to go with here. There's just something about the, the clear frame of it and the, the really interesting work that's being done to, to alter a story that I think everybody is sort of instantly familiar with, but to to create a completely different version of it, which still smells basically the same. I just, I just really like the idea of that. Um, I mean, that's sort of the guiding principle of myth, right? Is that it's, it's there originally anyway. Um, originally is the sort of instructive idea. And there is something, there is something about it, which I do think is instructive um, as a, as a concept album, I guess something instructive about, um, the way that there are people who can pay you, you know, the smallest amount of money, but still say, well, it's better than nothing, isn't it? Which is, which is basically just the grapes of wrath. Um, so like, there's something about that that really fits in neatly in my head. And, and that's why I'm going with Town. I would like to say that... I think both of these albums are advocating for Medicare for all in their own way in your reductive joke. Um, I do, I do want to give hooray for the riffraff that credit. Um, and so say that I really like both of these albums. Um, the navigator is another one. I mean, I've said this about all of them, like whether you want to engage with it at that level or not navigator more than the other two even is a very easy listen. Um, I think it's one that you can, just kind of turn on whether you're working around the house, driving, walking around, whatever. Um, and it, it's um, not, you know, not easy listening in the genre sense, but it is just a very um, kind of crisp and digestible, shall we say, compared to the other two kind of album. Um, a lot of just good pop songs on this um, that, again, are building from a lot of different other genres, but there's, there's a pop heart to this thing. So, um, it's a good listen, um, and again, I do think there's a lot of important kind of activism happening in that one, um, particularly as Sagara understands her own positioning um, and her own abilities and responsibilities as as a musician, as an artist in particular. Um, you know, there's a good line on there about um, politicians just being essentially bags of hot air that say something and nothing at the same time and artists being unfortunately silent. So I do think there's a degree to which the navigator is an understanding of that responsibility. That said, 
I love Hades Town dearly, so I'm glad to see this one go through. Um, but I think both great examples of kind of riffing on historical moments and places and different myths, whether that's a Greek one that we're all familiar with or whether that's old Rip Van Winkle, who I suppose is more of a punchline at this point than like we really remember what that myth is about. Um, but yeah, anything else about these, Tim, before I wrap us up? Healthcare is a human right. Amen. Number 43 on the spin list is Neutral Milk Hotels. Neutral Milk Hotels, rather. Uh, In the Aeroplane Over the Sea. An album that is emotionally intense and deeply important to um, a lot of people and confusing and inscrutable to a lot of others. Well, inscrutable to everyone, really. Um, One that is drawing on myth and history in very particular and unusual ways. And so I, I offered Tim two other albums that are doing similar um, in Anais Mitchell's Hades Town and Hooray for the Riff Raffs, The Navigator. And Hades Town makes its way through to the subtitles albums list. Thank you for listening. If you want to check out more about us, who we are, what we do, what we're writing on our blogs, Uh, what Tim is reviewing on Letterboxd or what I'm listening to and playlists I'm creating on Spotify. And if you want to catch up on back episodes of the podcast, please do visit our website, subtitlespodcast.com, or check us out wherever you listen to your podcast. We're up on everything at this point. And stay tuned for part two of this episode where I have talked about the bread of our cultural understanding, the nurture, the, the nourishment of re-engagement with, with various myths and historical moments. And Tim will be talking about it, a very different kind of bread when he discusses the gold rush and the Oceana roll.